James 1, 9 through 11. Let the lowly brother boast in his exaltation, and the rich in his humiliation, because like a flower of the grass he will pass away. For the sun rises with its scorching heat and withers the grass, its flower falls, and its beauty perishes. So also will the rich man fade away in the midst of his pursuits. This is God's word. You can sit down. Let's pray. Lord, we ask for your wisdom as we seek to understand your word and the current situations that each of us are in in our varied lives. But I pray that your spirit would speak through your word today. In Christ's name, amen. We saw last week in our, in our study that this letter from James is meant to help Christians who are enduring various trials. And James taught us we're to seek wisdom from God. And so in, in that wisdom, in that divine wisdom, have a perspective from God through our trials or, or what really are the tests that God sends our way. And the result of God's wisdom in us is that these tests of faith don't destroy us. They don't destroy our faith, but instead strengthen our faith, draw us nearer to Christ in faith. And this week's passage is the same thing. It's a a part of the very same line of reasoning from James that we saw beginning last week. And we broke off, uh, just just as as we do this expository preaching thing, we, we break off on passages where those passages are not over. Because you only give me an hour to preach. So, but, but, but this week, <laughs> this week it continues. So we are picking up where we left off last week. We broke off after verse 8 last week, but James did not. He wrote one continuous letter speaking first of faith in trials, and then here he names for us two specific trials that test our faith. And what are those two trials? Poverty and wealth. Poverty and wealth. We see this in the comparison between these two ways of being. We see it in verse 9, let the lowly brother exalt or boast in his exaltation. And then verse 10, but let the rich, and, and brother here, as we'll see this, brother is implied here. So let the, the rich brother boast in his humiliation. So the comparison is between the impoverished, and when we see that, think more along the lines of, of needy and dependent and, and, and then on the other side, the wealthy, and think here, independence, living in abundance. Because of, of, of the, the more localized economy that, that James is living in and the lack of an industrialized service sector, there really isn't a middle class in the first century Near East. Essentially, you have the very wealthy and the very poor, and then kind of in between the regular poor and the regular wealthy. But the, the, the poor and the working class poor in that day made up about 95% of the population. That's a lot. And, and then there's this group of landowners and merchants who would be considered wealthy, and then above that, this elite group 
of the generationally wealthy and powerful. The majority of the people in James's church, the churches that he's writing to, would have would have been in that lower class, that lowly class, as he calls them in verse 9. To the best of our knowledge, the, the, the churches who received James's letter were made up of, the majority of them were made up of Jewish Christians who fled Jerusalem during those early persecutions that you read about in the book of Acts. And that most likely means that when they left Jerusalem, they were leaving behind whatever means of employment they had, and they were working as tenant farmers, day laborers for the wealthier, the, the, the landowners. But then, not everyone in those churches is lowly. Which is why James says that these wealthy brothers and sisters in the church also need to consider their status on earth as a testing of the faith. So you have the lowly who are going, enduring a trial, testing of the faith, and the wealthy who are enduring a trial, the testing of their faith. So what we're going to do this morning is first look at why James describes this this way. Why does he say poverty is a, a test of the faith? Why does he say wealth is a test of your faith? And then we will examine how he says to respond to these tests, these trials, in wisdom. All right, so first question, how is poverty a trial or a test? It's a trial for anyone. But in particular, James is talking about Christians, which is why he uses the word brother there in verse 9. Let the lowly brother, he's talking about a Christian brother, let him boast in his exaltation. And remember, trials in this context doesn't just mean difficult circumstances, but going back to last week, trials are tests of faith. So by poverty, so defining poverty a little bit more, we're looking at this from a majority world definition. Not necessarily the American definition of poverty. 61% of the world, that's 4.8 billion people, 4.8 billion, that's a lot of people, live on less than $10 a day. And of that 4.8 billion, 17% of those live on less than $2 a day. So when James is talking about poverty, the lowly, he's talking about that more worldwide global understanding the historical understanding of poverty, the one meal a day variety of poverty, and not so much I had to ride the bus to work type of poverty that we might be thinking of. What comes to my mind, thinking of poverty, as he talks about the lowly, as uh, you know, last, last October I was in uh, northern Uganda working with pastors from the South Sudanese refugee camps, and I don't remember uh, what brought it up at the time as, as we were working with those guys, but in one of our teaching sessions, the American pastor that I was with uh, asked the brothers what their favorite meal was to have at Christmas. And the refugee camp pastors looked at him kind of blankly, and then he asked again, and one of the elders, the older guy in the group, just said quietly, rice. And the American pastor said loudly, rice is your favorite? And the Sudanese pastor said, rice is all we have at Christmas or any day. And that, that's a test of faith. That's the, the lowliness that James is getting at here. It's a, it's a test of faith to live in a UN refugee camp and to receive a cup of rice per person per day. James is talking here 
And verse 9, about the folks in the world who, when they pray, give us this Lord or, or give us this day our daily bread, they're, they're praying that in sincerity, in desperation. To understand how this type of poverty is a test of faith, then we need to trace the line all the way back to Israel wandering in the wilderness, coming up out of Egypt. They had, they had no land to call their own yet. They had no farms, no food. They were completely dependent on the Lord every step of the way. And they were dependent on him for manna from heaven, if you remember those stories. Completely dependent on the Lord for water from the rock. And God himself says in Exodus 16, this is a test. This dependence, this lowliness, this poverty is a test. Exodus 16.4 Then the Lord said to Moses, Behold, I am about to rain down bread from heaven for you, and the people shall go out and gather a day's portion every day that I may test them, whether they will walk in my law or not. So for Israel, that dependence on God was literally a test, a test of faith. And Jesus teaches, he picks up on this in the Gospels and says that his kingdom citizens, those who belong to him, and thus also belong to the Father, should also have this dependence on God through prayer. And James then draws this across from the Old Testament through the Gospels to the church. And he says the church's dependence on the Lord is like Israel's dependence in the wilderness. Therefore, poverty is a test for Christians. And just as for Israel, the temptation was to distrust the Lord, to grumble about the lack of meat and flavorful foods. That's the same temptation for anyone in need. The temptation is to look outside of what God has provided, to say, if only I had this, if only I had this much, this much more, or, or to covet and say, if only I had what they have, or to steal to what, get what you want, or to be dishonest in your dealings, and so be able to get what you crave. But what does the Lord say? And this is is where we see the test. This is what the Lord is pushing towards. Through Christ's redeeming work, we've been adopted as children of the Father. Therefore, since God is our Father, we have this whole host of privileges. We have His ear in prayer. We have His abundance in our need. Jesus says that our Heavenly Father knows our needs before we ask. He gives and gives because he cares for his children. The testing, the reason why James says that poverty is a test or a trial then, the testing of poverty is the heavenly father prompting the lowly Christian to trust him. Trust him to provide for his physical needs even as he has provided Christ. So he who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, how will he not also With him, graciously give us all things, Romans 8. That's lowliness. That's how lowliness is a test. How then is wealth a test of the faith? To see this, let's go back again to Israel in the wilderness. They were given more manna each day than they could possibly eat. And yet the Lord instructed them, take only what you can eat, only what you need for the day, and entrust yourself to the Lord again for the next day. And you see, in, in that abundance, there are temptations 
just as there are temptations in scarcity. In abundance, we are tempted to take what God has provided and store it up so that we, we can relieve ourselves from that daily dependence on God. And instead, instead of being dependent on Him, trust in what we have stored up by our strength. So turn with me to Luke 12. So back, back a little bit from, from James. We'll see an example of this same wisdom in Luke's gospel. Luke chapter 12, and we're going to see in this parable is Jesus tells a man who had abundance and began to trust in his abundance rather than recognizing who he was before God. So Luke chapter 12, verses 16 through 21. And he told them a parable saying, the land of a rich man produced plentifully. And he thought to himself, what shall I do? For I have nowhere to store my crops. And he said, I will do this. I will tear down my barns and build larger ones. And there I will store all my grain and my goods. And I will say to my soul, soul, you have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax, eat, drink, be merry. But God said to him, fool, this night your soul is required of you, and the things you have prepared, whose will they be? So is the one who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. So the the, the temptation, the testing of abundance is whether or not to trust in the abundance It's not so much that having an abundance is wrong. And it's not that building a bigger storehouse is wrong. Saving money is not wrong. Saving for the future is not wrong. Building a bigger business so you are more able to provide work and and living for others, that's good. It's not wrong. It's not that the wealth itself here is this man's sin. Where this man's heart erred was when he said, Soul, you have ample goods, relax. What Jesus is describing here is a man whose rest, his source of comfort, is in his wealth. The temptation of the wealthy is to find rest and security in wealth rather than in the Lord. You see this with Israel in the wilderness. The security in the manna or in the Lord? It's in the Lord. See that with the, the man in the storehouses? We see this with Jesus' instruction to the rich young man as well. It's in, in the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. A young, a young wealthy man comes to Jesus. He says, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Jesus sees into his heart, realizes man is trusting in his wealth, idolizing his wealth, finding security and meaning in his wealth. So Jesus says, here's your test. Sell all that you have. Give it to the poor, come follow me. Man can't do it. Because his God is his wealth. And so he goes away downtrodden. And Jesus says that famous line, it's harder for a rich man to enter the kingdom than for a camel to go through the eye of a needle. That the trial of riches, the testing that those with abundance endure is that we're tempted to entrust ourselves to riches rather than the Lord. 
So now do you see how wealth is a test? Poverty is a test. Wealth is a test. Poverty is a trial. Wealth is a trial. And as Americans living with more wealth than 95% of the rest of the world, I think it's fair to say our test is more on that side, the wealth side, isn't it? Than it is on the poverty side. Does not mean, though, that we aren't tempted in the same ways that the impoverished are. We often have that thought that this or that material good can solve my problems. That's just materialism. But that's the same, the same line of reasoning that the, the lowly are, are tempted towards. But, but on a spectrum of having and having not, our temptation is more to trust in what we have as opposed to what we want. So wealth is a test just as much as poverty is. So we've established that now. Both are trials. How then do we apply wisdom to these trials? That's what we see here in James. Look again at the text. Verse 9, let the lowly brother, or the, the brother who is enduring the test of poverty, let the lowly brother boast in his exaltation. That's the command, the, the imperative. And so now we need to figure out what it's based on. Remember the laws, the commands of the scriptures flow out of God's wisdom. So, so on what wisdom of God can James say the lowly ought to boast in his exaltation? From God's perspective, already the impoverished brother, the lowly brother, holds the high position of brother. That is, through Christ's life, death, resurrection, and ascension into heaven, through the Spirit causing this person to be born again into Christ, this person has been adopted and is therefore a child of God. And is, as Ephesians 2 says, seated at Christ's right hand. So don't let that pass you by. That brotherhood, that adoption, is the foundational truth upon which anyone has any reason to rejoice. The lowly brother's eternal identity, his, his true identity, is that adopted child of God, brother. This is the same divine perspective, the same wisdom from the Spirit that, that Paul gives to uh, the members of the Corinthian church. So in the Corinthian church, there, there were these questions from church members about whether enslaved church members were somehow less, if they were actually fully Christian because they were slaves. And they wanted to know whether it was okay to continue in that or whether they should flee their situations. They were confused. What do we do? So Paul says in 1 Corinthians 7, Were you a bondservant when you were called? Do not be concerned about it. But if you can gain your freedom, avail yourself of that opportunity. And then he says, For he who was called in the Lord as a bondservant is a freedman of the Lord. Paul doesn't say in 1 Corinthians 7, The bondservant will one day be a freedman of the Lord. Or that the bondservant is like a freedman of the Lord. But the bondservant is a freedman of the Lord. That, that, that greater identity, freedman of the Lord, that is the Christian's primary identity. That's the divine perspective. That's the wisdom from God. So in this, this brief window of eternity, your earthly station is servant. But the reality is... You're already a freed man of the Lord. So you can even now live in that reality and so endure a life of servitude. James is saying the exact same thing 
in James 1 that Paul is saying in 1 Corinthians 7. The exact same thing. Impoverished Christian, lowly Christian, you may feel yourself to be the scum of the earth, unwanted, unimportant, but the reality is because of the Father's love for you and Christ's work for you and the Spirit's work in you, you are already exalted. Therefore, boast in your exaltation. And not only is that already true, and here's what we're going to see as we examine these, how we are to boast or why we're to boast, we see a current reality and a what will be. And in both of those, we boast, whether you're rich or poor. So so not only is it already true that you are an adopted child of God, but at Christ's return, you will realize and will experience that great exaltation. Don't feel very exalted right now, the servant would say. But you will experience that exaltation at Christ's return. When you are raised up, glorified, you will not only be exalted by God, but lifted above the world to reign with Christ over all creation. We will judge angels, Paul says. That is exaltation. There is an exaltation that the poor have now because they are in Christ, and there is an exaltation that is coming at Christ's return. And so those dual realities ought to be their boast. Who we are in Christ now and in eternity ought to be the motivation to put spring in your step, to set your shoulders back, to to raise your eyes, lift your eyes off the ground, to, to lift your chin up with a boast that says, I am son of the most high God. I am now friends with the king of all creation. And soon my king will return and he will lift me up and I will rule over all creation with him. That's exaltation. That's the boast that James is getting at here. So with that perspective in mind, now we can turn to the rich because this one's harder, isn't it? James 1.10, and let the rich brother boast in his humiliation. And again, assumed here in the text, in the, in the syntax, is the word brother. This is a Christian. And this concerns his identity, where he, where he used to get his sense of self-worth. That's, that's what the boasting here is. Where is, your, where is your pride? Where is your satisfaction? Where is your identity? The wisdom of the, law, of the world would say, well, if you have wealth, if you have means, then you have security and power. You have the ability to get whatever you want and do whatever you want. And so from the world's perspective, that would be a grounds for pride. That would be a grounds for identity. But the wisdom of God, on the other hand, remember, this is always going to be different. The wisdom of God says, for a Christian, riches are a trial to be endured in faith. They are not to be a source of comfort, hope, and pride. Therefore, let your boast be in your humiliation. What does he mean by that, humiliation? In the the original language, there's a play on words happening in verses 9 and 10. You could could translate 9 and 10 this way. The low brother should boast in his heightening. The elevated brother should boast in his lowering. The, The ESV beautifies it a little bit. It's translated this lowness, this lowering as, a, as humiliation, the act of coming down, because that's the one word that we have in English of describing that. 
The, the problem, though, with the word humiliation is we tend to see that word and think embarrassment, don't we? Oh, he tripped over a sandbag when he walked off the stage. Humiliating. She spilled coffee all over her wedding dress. Humiliating. My dog right now has to wear the, the cone of shame. It's, <laughs> these are humiliations in the sense that we normally ascribe to that word. But that's not what James means here. That's not the humiliation James is talking about. Think, think more along the lines of high status to low status. The prince and the pauper, the horse and his boy. That, that's the humbling the high status to low status that James is getting at. And again, we're looking for the divine perspective here. The, the world sees wealth as a sense of power, honor, independence, lacking in nothing. But how does God see it? Oh, money can buy a lot of things, but it cannot buy salvation. It cannot purchase redemption. So the rich man, with all that he can provide for himself in this world, the things he cannot purchase are the things he needs the most. Forgiveness of sins, a new heart, the Holy Spirit, righteousness before God. And so he is led, just as the poor man is, to the cross, where all of that is purchased for him. And at the cross, in his total dependence, in his humiliation, in his neediness, he sees a crucified Savior, poor, beaten, bloodied, naked man with nothing to call his own in this world, hanging like a shameful common criminal. And that's humbling. Being reminded that your only salvation is from the Son of God, who though he was rich became poor for your sake, that's humbling. It says that the way to salvation is through that guy, that, that, through the humiliation of the cross. That's humbling. That will bring down a man from a high status to a low status. See more of the same idea again in 1 Corinthians. 1 Corinthians, when Paul is instructing the bondservant to live as the freedman that he already is, in that same passage, verse, uh, chapter 7, verse 22, the Spirit teaches that the Christian who is a freedman is a bondservant of the Lord, the same crucified Christ. So, so the divine perspective is always to compare ourselves to Christ, not the world. So a rich man, able to throw his money around and make things happen, needs to remember, because of my true identity, my born-again identity in Christ, I'm a servant, a slave to Christ. So now it's not earthly riches that this man has to boast in or to find significance in, but the cross and slavery to the one who was hung on the cross. That's who the rich brother truly is bound to Christ, purchased by Christ. A rich Christian doesn't belong to himself. He's a slave. He's a man purchased from a life of what is it, the illusion of independence and wealth to be brought low in the world's eyes to depend on Christ for his name, 
his identity, his cleansing blood, his position before God, his righteousness, his spirit, his obedience to God, his eternal lasting riches, pretty much everything that counts. And that identity, that servitude, is to be the rich Christian's boast. I belong to Christ of the cross and his kingdom. I am a slave to Christ in his kingdom. There is a, a bringing low, isn't there? From the heights of worldly significance to worldly insignificance. That is the humiliation that James says needs to be the, the rich man's boast, his identity. And likewise, just as there is an, is an already in this life perspective from God for the rich man, there's also an eternal perspective we need to look at. We see this in the second half of the passage, because like, look at verse 10, because like a flower of the grass, he will pass away. The sun rises with its scorching heat, withers the grass, its flower falls, its beauty perishes, so also will the rich man fade away in the midst of his pursuits. So just, just as the, the poor man, by the Spirit in him, through faith, finds an eternity identity now that will be realized in the future, so the rich man will experience the, the, the realization of today's divine reality. The day is coming, what James reminds us of here, the day is coming when all that he has in this life will be stripped away. This is in the midst of his pursuits. So he is just about to finish a deal. Gone, taken away. He's going to die. In the height of the day, at his peak, He's going to die, and he will enter into eternal service to the king. We read Psalm 49 earlier, and you can really see a lot of Psalm 49 informing what James is saying. He would have probably sung that song frequently whenever he gathered with the church. So we read Psalm 49, and we see there, death is the great equalizer. Both the rich and the poor die, and we we got to say stupid in church. The, the wise and the stupid die too. The, the rich are brought down to the same level as the poor because death is the equalizer. And the psalmist says that truth of death, as the, the coming death, the certainty of death, that truth should be in the heart of the rich man. If he has wisdom, that should be in his heart. He should live his life in the wisdom of knowing death is coming. The noonday sun is rising. That sun that withers Everything is coming. The most beautiful flowers of the field that stand out in the morning, where while the, the common grasses there just, just look common, all of them will die. All of them will be withered away. The same. Anything earthly, therefore, will be left behind to, his, to people after him. Can't take it with him. So, so the rich man should know, in Psalm 49 as well, in wisdom, he should know that he cannot ransom himself from death. He sees death is coming. I cannot ransom myself from death. I, can't, I cannot use all of my wealth. I cannot use any of my power to somehow pay off God and escape death. He can't do that for himself. He can't do that for his family. He can't do that for, for anybody. The usefulness of his wealth has extreme limits. The debt of sin is too great. Death is too certain. But God, 
That's the, the, the point of Psalm 49. But God has given the wealthy brother something that he carries through death. He carries with him the new life in Christ that has been purchased by Christ. He carries with him the spirit who has been implanted in him. And so he carries with him the treasure of Christ, the treasure of peace with God. So, the, so though the rich man will be humbled by the exact earthly end as the poorest of the poor, scrounging for food in, in, the, in the dumps, in the trash heaps, they meet the same end. It is through that being brought down into death that the rich brother will experience his true riches. That's when he sees what he really has. Therefore, the wisdom of God says he ought to boast in that. But let your boast be not in earthly riches, but in that humiliation. Boast in the humbling experience that is coming where you will enter through the very same narrow gate of the kingdom that the poorest Christian goes through. There's only one gate. Why? Because on the other side of that gate, why should your boast be in that? Because on the other side of that gate is true wealth, true glory, true lasting beauty. So that's the instruction here from James. That's James's instruction for us, and really it's Christianity 101, isn't it? It's, it's, it was in all the songs we sang today. You are in Christ. It's not you who lives, but Christ in you. It's not the trial of your poverty that defines you, but Christ in you. It's not the trial of your wealth that defines you, but Christ in you. You are a new creation. You're not measured by, by the world or the standards of the world, but by God himself. That's, that, this is Christianity. All right, so how do, we, how do we take that gospel reality and live it? Because this is what James is instructing us here. We're going to see this a lot in James. This is meant to be more than comforting self-talk. We don't, we don't believe these things because believing them is a, is a balm or a coping mechanism. Christianity isn't an opiate meant to, to deaden the pain of the world. James does not say to the poor, hey, you know what, I know this sucks, but pretend that you're not actually poor. That should do the trick. This is not Peter Pan and the Lost Boys and Rufio at the table full of imaginary food. This is reality. We, we believe these things because they're true, not because they're comforting. Jesus, uh, James says to boast in the truth that you are exalted in Christ and you will be exalted in Christ. He does not say to the rich, on the other hand, walk about with a sort of false humility that pays lip service to being a servant of God. Right, where's the t-shirt? Or as the, as the, the Pharisees that Jesus talks about, they, you know, they make it look like they're fasting. That's not what he's saying to the rich here. While, while pretending to be humble, while saying, whispering, soul, you're gonna be all right. You're gonna be all right because of all the wealth that you have stored up for yourself. Rather, he says to the wealthy, not that, but, but boast in your humiliation. Not, not your pretend, acting, uh, uh, pretending to be humble, but boast in your true humiliation. So how do we do that? How do we live out these realities? We'll start with the poor. Who you are in Christ now is the basis on which the Spirit would say to you, 
Do not be discouraged. You've been exalted by Christ, therefore do not be discouraged. Do not be cast down. You have been lifted up by the Father. Do not be envious of others. What is envy? Envy is that wishing you were somebody else. Wishing you were in their position. Wishing you were living their life. But the reality of what James is telling us here is, you would simply ask, well, what is there to envy? There is no higher position than to be seated at Christ's right hand. So why would you envy? How, high, how much higher can you go? You can't. Real instruction from this would say, do not be anxious. Your Father cares for you. Do not be covetous of what others have. Covetousness, as we read earlier, is idolatry. It's craving something that has not been given to you so that it affects your heart in such a way that you you distrust God. You think less of God because He hasn't given you what you want. But listen, you have an eternal inheritance. What could be greater? What could you possibly covet? Do not be bitter. Do not be bitter because of of the pain of this temporary testing, temporary poverty. Because this test is for your good. It, It is meant from our loving Father to sharpen your vision for that which is hard to see now. But with eyes of faith is glorious. Do be joyful. So last week, consider it pure joy. All joy to be loved by the Father in this way. You have the privilege, lowly Christian, you have the privilege of depending on Him for everything. And that that privilege will draw you nearer to Him in a way that others will not experience. You're like a favorite kid. You get to be with the Father more because of your dependence on Him. You will experience that. That's a privilege. So do be joyful. Do be thankful. Do be generous. In 2 Corinthians 8, Paul talks about the church in Macedonia who, even in their test of poverty, was generous towards the church in Jerusalem. Probably the same people that James is writing to. Paul says, For in a severe test of affliction, and there's that testing of poverty, for in a severe test of affliction, their abundance of joy and their extreme poverty have overflowed in a wealth of generosity on their part. So generosity towards others shows that you know what little you have is from the Lord and that you trust he will continue to give so you can be fully generous. Finally, do be prayerful. One of the benefits of being in need is knowing you're in need. And so, knowing you are in need, you have greater motivation to seek the Lord in prayer. The wealthy do not have that motivation. You have it. Use that privilege that you've been given. Secondly, to the rich, what does it look like practically to boast in your humiliation? It sounds like pontificating, doesn't it? 
Well, I think the best place to look for this is 1 Timothy chapter 6. 1 Timothy chapter 6, if you want to write that down. 1 Timothy chapter 6, verses 17 through 19. The Spirit teaches us there, As for the rich in this age, in this present age, charge them not to be haughty, nor to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but on God, who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. So, so there's, the, there's this, this attitudinal instruction there. How, how is it that our boast would be in our humiliation? Well, if, you're, if, you, if your hope is in your riches, it can't be in your humiliation. If, if your hope is in riches, you will be haughty and proud, and you will boast in your riches. It's unavoidable. Therefore, don't do that, is what he says. Don't put your hope in your riches. Don't set your rest and your security and your comfort in your money and property like the the man with the extra storehouses. Rather, realize that anything you enjoy, anything you enjoy comes from God himself. So be thankful and set your rest and your security and your comfort on him. And here's what that looks like in real life. Verse 18, 1 Timothy 6, 18, do good, be rich in good works, be generous and ready to share. That's all basically the same thing, but it's four ways of saying that. Do good, be rich in good works, be generous, ready to share. What you have is just with an open hand. You're recognizing this is a test. This is a trial from the Lord that I would be dependent on him. So my hands are like this with my stuff, not like this. You see the difference? It's very easy to see. This is your posture towards those around you. This is your posture towards your neighbors. This is your posture towards your fellow church members. Your wealth isn't your security, and you know that, so you don't have to hold on to it so tightly. Rather, it's a testing from the Lord, and that testing is a gift from the Lord. And the Father who loves you, who knows what you need to get you through this life in faith. That's the testing from the Lord. It's meant to strengthen your faith and to secure you more tightly to Him and away from the world. Therefore, use those material goods that you have as a tool, a gift from God to, to outwardly show where your security is. Your wealth is just an opportunity to be rich in good works. That's what Paul's saying to Timothy. Thus, verse 19, 1 Timothy 6, 19, thus, storing up treasure for yourselves as a good foundation for the future so that they may take hold of that which is truly life. What is truly life? That humiliation, the cross. Take hold of that which is truly life, church. Take hold of living in servitude to Christ. Boast in Christ. Boast in his cross. 